At the conclusion of last week's sermon, you may have recalled that I shared a story about a five-year-old boy going to his very first football game with his father. If you weren't here, I'll go ahead and refresh you with what the illustration uh, was. And it basically was a five-year-old boy who catches this first football game with his father, and his father gives him specific instructions about his behavior at the game. And he told his son, when the game starts, you'll have to stay seated, be quiet, and act like an adult. Not long after the kickoff, the little boy quickly noticed that there are a lot of people jumping up and down, screaming and yelling in excitement, shaking their fists in the air. And he turned to his father and he asked, so are these adults? The testimony of the adults did not match his expectation, especially in light of the instruction that he received. And I shared that this is often the case with the watching world when it comes to the testimony of the local church. The public testimony of many churches has been damaged tremendously, stemming from pastors and church leaders falling into sexual sin, in some instances stealing money from the church, all the way to other problems that are caused from within the body as disunity is promoted because people have personal agendas And sometimes it involves things as trivial as paint colors and carpet selections in the sanctuary. We have all heard the stories. And we can only imagine how the testimonies like these grieve God's heart. And this is not God's will for the church. And He desires that the church would give him much glory and that the church would serve as testimonies of his redemptive and sanctifying work in the lives of his people. God desires that we would serve as examples to each other and to the eyes of the watching world. Over the last several weeks, we've had the opportunity to go through a series called The Testimony of Our Church. And we've been on a journey as we've been working through Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we've had the opportunity to look at different age groups and different genders to consider what their testimony should like, what they should look like in a spiritually healthy church. Our attention now is on the younger men in verses 6 through 8. And last week I failed to clarify what, spe- uh, what specific age we're talking about when we're referring to younger men. Very similar to the younger women. Young people in their tweenies. Okay? We're talking about young men who... We're talking about teens, and we're talking about potentially people in their 20s. And so when you take those two words together and you put them together... It's where we come up with tweenies, okay? It's, uh, it's like uh, the, the tweenage years, you know, those years before, uh, right before adolescence, 10, 11, and 12. And so we're talking about young adult men from teenagers to young single, or in some instances, uh, young married men in their 20s. And it's possible that some could be slightly older, especially if they were saved later in life. And the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus in this pastoral epistle that is bringing specific instruction to the churches on the island of Crete. The church continues to be negatively impacted by the gluttonous, deceptive, lying culture that surrounds them. And it didn't help that false teachers were invading the church as well. And so Paul continues to exhort Titus to do something. He says, keep speaking the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. The gospel changed many hearts. Now Paul is emphasizing exhortations 
for Titus to give to the church related to their testimonies. And here's what Paul had for Titus, and now for us in Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, which reads as follows. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. If you look in your bulletin this morning, you'll notice that I updated the sermon proposition so that it more accurately reflects our text. And this is what it says. Young men, our passage provides three specific ways for you to be strong examples so that your testimony has the greatest impact in the church and to the watching world. Three specific ways for you to be strong examples so that your testimony has the greatest impact in the church and to the watching world. And last Sunday, we covered the very first point. And we focused on verse 6, which requires young men to sober your thinking. And we considered the broad definition of the term sensible by looking at it from three defining aspects. And these are still listed for you in your outline. And we said to be sensible emphasizes that young men be level-headed, that they be prudent, and that they be self-controlled in all things. That is the testimony. Well, our second point is to show who you are. And we'll be looking practically at how you could do this. And we have three sub-points under that second point that we'll consider. First, your deeds and doctrine. Second, your dignity. And third, your discourse. And then our third and final point will function as a purpose statement within our passage and answers the question, why do any of this? Really, what is the point of any of it? Point number three is to shine in the presence of protesters. We have a lot of remaining ground to cover, and so let's get started. Young men, three specific ways for you to be strong examples so that your testimony has the greatest impact in the church and to the watching world. The first way we covered, which is to sober your thinking. The second way is to show who you are. And we need to draw our attention to verse 7 and verse 8. And let's read them again together. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Dignified. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. If you remember last week, we said that this phrase, in all things... In the NAS, or if you have the ESV, it says, in all respects, that this, this phrase, I believe, belongs to verse 6. And I gave you some reasons why. As a result of bringing it to verse 6, we said what happens is that puts show yourself, in the Greek it starts with yourself, show, okay, participle, it puts it in the emphatic position show yourself looks like a command but is it there are actually only two commands in this entire passage in verses 1 through 10 look at the beginning of verse 1 paul gives titus a command to keep speaking or teaching and the second command is found when we look at the beginning of verse 6 when it says urge or exhort or admonish, depending on your translation. So this passage is really directed at preachers and teachers of the word. We understand this because it's a pastoral epistle, right? And that Paul, a pastor, is writing to another guy, Titus, who is also a pastor. Okay, we get that. But here in Titus uh, 2, 6 through 8, every preacher... Is, is commanded to always, as a habit, or regularly being called to instruct young men. And the fact that young men need to always be instructed in certain things 
gives us the secondary meaning or the secondary purpose of what this passage is about. I just want to make sure that we get to the author's original intent. And this is what we are focusing on this morning. The content of what preachers and teachers are to habitually be urging young men to do. And under the first point, Titus is to urge young men to be sensible in all things. And this was reflected in the practical exhortation that we received last week. Sober your thinking. And our second point, Titus is to show himself as an example. And the word here is a participle that actually supports the command urge. And so there is imperatival or command force that's coming with it for Titus, as well as for preachers and teachers today. And it provides a practical way for Titus to urge young men. Showing yourself. I had ING, so it doesn't look like a command. That's, if you're a Bible writer, go ahead and jot that in, because that'll let you know that it's a participle. Showing yourself, or this word can also be translated maintaining or providing yourself as an example. Well, how is Titus to show himself as an example? Look at the middle of verse 7, which reflects letter A in our outline under our second point. The first way to do it, Paul says, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine. And this is all tied together in the Greek. And Paul is basically saying, show who you are by your example of deeds and doctrine. Paul's concern for the Cretan believers to perform good deeds is a major theme mentioned throughout this book. He starts, really, we could even point back to his address to false teachers at the end of chapter 1 that says that they are unfit for every good deed. And then in Titus 2.14, he describes believers as people who are zealous for good works. In Titus 3.1, he calls us to be ready for every good work. In Titus 3.8, he calls believers to be devoted to good deeds before he ends the letter in Titus 3.14 by saying, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. At the same time, the Apostle Paul very carefully qualified that we are not saved by good works. And he says this in Titus 3.5. We're, we're not saved on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. When it comes to our salvation, there is no way for any person on the planet through their deeds and through their actions to dress themselves up well enough to be acceptable before a perfect and a thrice holy God. We're all in the same condition. And that is desperate and spiritually bankrupt when it comes to our condition. Our achievements, our contributions mean nothing in regards to salvation. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ was sent. He was sent to do what? To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus Christ, God, true God, and the Father sent Him specifically to pay the penalty and, and the debt for sin so that whoever would turn from serving their sin and trusting in their own righteousness would trust completely and solely in Christ by faith. And they could be forgiven and granted Christ's perfect righteousness. It cannot be done for you. Parents, you cannot do it for your children. Siblings, you cannot do it for someone in your family. Friends, you cannot make a decision for another friend. God's plea is personal. As he extends it to everyone individually to come to him on his 
own terms. And that's exactly what it is. We see it in our people who are doing outreach for our church. It's a plea. We beg them. Have you responded to God's personal plea to you to trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? Has your heart truly been converted and born again to live for Christ? Or do you still find yourself wanting? Today is the day of salvation. It is an all-in moment. There is no giving God part of your life. It is everything. It is coming to the end of yourself. It is death to self. And newness of life in Christ. And God desires to change every, every person's sinful heart, selfish heart to live for him. But you must see and respond to your need for the perfect righteousness of God that can only come through Jesus Christ. Only then can you be freed with the right motivation to do the works of of righteousness that he enables believers to do. And the gospel should be crystal clear in your mind because you cannot be saved by that which you don't know. And it needs to be clear in our mind as we consider our passage today. As Paul calls Titus and young men to show themselves who they are by their examples of good deeds and doctrine, you must understand and maintain a proper view of the connection between your good deeds and your doctrine, which also includes the doctrine of the gospel. And what Paul is saying here, and really what he's saying throughout this entire letter that he's writing to Titus, is there's an intimate relationship between what you believe and how you are living. Verse 7 in the NAS says it succinctly, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. In the ESV it says, show yourself to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. Good deeds flow out of good doctrine. And the phrase good deeds is really straightforward. It is the word good and it is the noun form of the word work. And so you put it together, you can translate it either way, good deeds or good works. And good deeds or works flow out of good teaching and doctrine. And there are many different ways to say this. Or our orthodoxy produces our orthopraxy. Our faith produces our fruit. Our high calling produces our high conduct. Our worship of God produces our works for God. Our changed hearts produce our changed living. Our right doctrine produces our right living. And I know if you've been at Cornerstone for an extended period of time, I'm not sharing anything new, yet it's good for all of us spiritually to dwell on this reality. Young men, does what you believe show others who you are in Christ by your example? Elders, does what we believe show who we are by example? Are we continuing to teach things that are fitting for sound doctrine? Are we making it our habit to urge the young men in our church to be sensible and to follow our example? Are we showing ourselves to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine? And I assure you, Cornerstone, we are doing our very best. We are doing our very best, and yet we would still plead, to, plead for you to, to support us with your ongoing prayers as God continues to grow us as leaders. And I'm so thankful that God brought me to a church where I can honestly, I can genuinely say that when it, when it comes to the elders that were here before I even got here, that I want to follow them as they follow Christ. It is what you know 
and what you practice that shows or proves who you are. And this is true cross-culturally on the planet. Whether you're a doctor, whether you're an optometrist, no matter what, what you've been called to do, a truck driver, a math teacher, science teacher, Huey, you just recently took your um, boards for your recertification, right, as a doctor. Question for you. Why couldn't you just share with the hospital and, and just show them your diploma from medical school? Or, or why couldn't you have just uh, said, I've been practicing medicine for the last 10 years. Why, why do I need to take these tests? I'll tell you why. Because they, they want to see what he knows. Because what he knows will prove who he is. And the same is true in the Christian life. What you know and what you practice shows who you are. And look at the word example in the middle of verse 7. In the Greek, this word literally is referring to a mark or an impression left by an instrument, such as a pen, sword, or hammer. And in John 20, 25, doubting Thomas when he said that he's not going to um, believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected until what? Until he could put his hand into and, and feel the imprint, right? Exact same word in the Greek. And this word also came to be used figuratively as a pattern or a mold, a model, or a copy of the original of something. And this provides such a visible picture for us. Paul is letting Titus know that his life needs to serve as a pattern, a mold, a model copy as he practically lives his faith out before the Cretan churches. And in this instance, before the young men in those churches whom he is urging to follow his example so that they can also serve as examples. But there's something else that is vital for us to see. This is a package deal, as I mentioned before, in the Greek. And there's a prepositional phrase that describes how the impression gets made, how the person gets shaped. What is the shaping influence on Titus's life that will enable him to be an effective example? It's a little easier to see in the NAS right after the phrase example of good deeds and it's the phrase with purity in doctrine. And the word translated purity is only used here in the New Testament and it literally means uncorruptness. It describes that which is uncorrupted or unalloyed and thus we get the word purity. And one commentator says that this reflects purity of motive without desire or gain or respect of persons as well as purity of doctrine. And he goes on to say that as such, Titus's teaching would stand in direct contrast to the self-motivated instruction of the false teachers active on the island of Crete. The pure doctrine of the gospel and instruction passed on through apostolic teaching was intended to change the lives of the teachers and, change, and would change the lives of the listeners as well. The ESV translates it integrity. And this word can also be translated soundness. And it would be Paul's instruction to Titus through the gospel and apostolic teaching of the word that would allow Titus's life to serve as an example of good deeds for the younger men in the church. And I think we've all been familiar with the world's definition of integrity. Integrity is who you are when nobody is watching. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and let the world keep that definition. Christian integrity is a recognition of the fact that we know that God is always watching. 
whether somebody's watching or not, we know that he is watching us and desires our lives to be impacted and molded by the doctrine and instruction that he has provided for us as he changes us, as he changes our character to become more like Christ. That is Christian integrity. And it yields good deeds. A good question to ask is, how is your doctrine or what you're learning about God, how is it prompting your heart to serve Christ, the church, and the watching world? And this really drives at the heartbeat of discipleship. Doctrine should drive us to disciple-making. Good doctrine leads to good disciple-making. I'll say it that way. Christians are called to invest what they are learning about God into the lives of other believers. And if you're not making a disciple, it may mean that you haven't applied your doctrine, or it may mean that your doctrine that you're holding to may not be as good or as pure as you might think. drives us to make disciples. And it does so much more. I mean, these banners are up here. They're, 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 they're to serve more than just a decoration. They're a reminder for us of the philosophy of ministry of our church. It's a reminder of our, our orthodoxy, which is reflected in our doctrinal statement. And then this is a picture of our orthopraxy. And we talked about doctrine driving in discipleship. Doctrine as we learned in, back in our evangelism class, drives us in evangelism. Why? Because the fields are white with harvest. Why? Because our doctrine teaches us that God has called people to himself. And our doctrine lets us know that he is going to use us as messengers to go out and to fish for those people. He's going to make you fishers of men. Praying that we're going to be dependent upon God, preaching the word with precision, not only on Sundays from this pulpit, but preaching the word to our own hearts and, and, and getting it right, and that it would be clear to us as we study it during the week. Praising God. Right doctrine allows us to see the, the grandeur and the majesty of who God is. And that fuels the heart to worship him. He's awesome. He's awesome. And we don't see him as we should see him. And I think we all get that. Yet, in our pursuit of, of studying him, we, we, can, we, can, we can see God in greater measure. We can see a bigger God. And this is just some practical ways that you can show, and then I'm talking to the whole church here, not just specifically to young men, or that's where that's our focus, but you can show who you are by your deeds and your doctrine. Well, there's a second way that Paul challenges Titus and younger men to show who you are, and it's by your dignity. And this is letter B under our second point. Here, if you look at the very end of verse 7, Paul uses the word dignity. And it's the noun form of the same word that he used as an adjective to describe older men in the church in verse 2, which is translated dignified. And this word describes the kind of maturity, the gravity and majesty or seriousness which would mark a person worthy of respect. And I shared this with the older men when we talked about dignity is a mark of maturity, of spiritual maturity. And it doesn't find humor in the things that are base of this world. In the, the, the vulgar and corrupt speech of this world. And young men, foolish and corrupt talk is to be far from your lips. Far from your mind and far from your lips. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's to be far. And I'm not going to spend too much time here because our next subpoint addresses speech. And, of course, there is some overlap. When young men, it's easy for sexual humor, 
perverse or inappropriate conversation to start up because of our depravity. I remember looking back. I remember. I, I remember this as a, as an unbeliever. My mom came home from work one day, and my twin brother and I had a friend over, and we were upstairs in our room, and we were talking about girls. And I remember my mom talking to my twin brother on later that night, and she, she had tears in her eyes, and she just said, I couldn't believe the things that you were talking about. She couldn't believe it. Because that's what lost people do. And being dignified demands awareness. And as I shared before, Paul uses the same word in Philippians 4.8 when he exhorts us to think rightly or to make a connection to our point here. Show who you are by being a dignified thinker. Finally, brethren, it says in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. Right there's the word. And then it instructs us to think about or dwell on such things. And the Christian life really is a battle for our hearts and for our minds. And this, again, is why we need to be regularly filling our minds with the Word of God and the instruction that is going to constantly allow us to renew our minds to think rightly. One of the abiding challenges that Christian leaders face is to set an example for the younger men of the church in regard to what is dignified. And older men... This is on us. This is our call to serve as that example of dignity in their life. They should be able to look at our lives and to imitate us. As it relates to how we relate to women of the opposite sex. As it relates to um, our connection with the world and worldly possessions as it relates to our attitudes towards serving Christ and the church and all of these things and many more, we're to strive to be dignified examples for younger men. And younger men, I'm not sure what comes to mind when you think about the word dignity or being dignified. But I want to challenge you. It's so easy to be foolish and you cannot play the fool simultaneously and represent God as a dignified example. They, they cannot coexist. It doesn't work. And there comes a time when you'll have to decide how committed are you to fleeing youthful lusts. Now, I'm not just talking about sexual youthful lusts. I'm talking about youthful lust that the Apostle Paul actually was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22 that he encouraged young men to flee. And in the context, if you go back to verse 16 of that chapter, Paul is encouraging Timothy to avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness before he tells Timothy to flee youthful lust and to pursue righteousness. Show who you are by your dignity. Could you imagine what the Apostle Paul would have to say? What instruction would he give if he came back now in the year 2014 to younger men? It would probably sound something like this. Avoid striving to be popular and well-liked. Don't try to be so cool and impressionable. And quit focusing on how many friends or followers that you have on Facebook and Instagram or how many twits you tweet with. Something to that effect. Strive to have your identity in Christ and not in the things of this world. It's not about how you look. It's not about your image. It's not about what people think of you. It's not about how you dress. It's not about how successful you are in the professional world. It's not about what car you drive or what home you live in. 
None of it matters. It's about showing who you are in Christ as your life serves as an example and points others to Christ. And I'll just say this practically, young men, make sure that you surround yourself with dignified people, with godly people who can influence you. You know, if I look back even in my early Christian years, I still, there, there, I still just had friends that I, I grew up with. There was a residue of unbelieving friends that still continued to have a negative impact on, on my life, and I was so blind to it. Surround yourself with godly people and godly influences. And this is 1 Corinthians 15.33 all the way. Do not be deceived. Bad company will corrupt good morals. It will. Well, there's a third way that Paul challenges Titus and young men to show who you are, and that is by your discourse. And this is letter C under our second point. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Paul summons Titus to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. And the word translated sound is a word that we've seen before. It's been used to describe doctrine. It can also be translated healthy. And the Greek word translated speech simply means word and is probably referring to the act of teaching, but certainly extends beyond teaching into everyday life as well. And so I want us to briefly consider just these two angles. First, discourse and teaching, and then everyday speech. Certainly Titus's teaching was to be sound and healthy. And Paul used this exact same word in what I call the parallel passage for Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12 as he is writing to Titus here in Titus 2, 7, and 8 when he called Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But be an example to believers in speech and life and love and faith and purity. And now this is the exhortation in 2, 7, and 8 that, that Titus is receiving. And we see this very same word. Be an example in your speech. And right after... Paul talks to, turn there with me, would you, to 1 Timothy 4.12. You've got to see this, because this is, this is powerful, and we're right next to it in Titus. So we can go right back to, right back to it. You've got to see this. So he encourages Timothy to be an example in speech, and then just a few verses later, in verse 16, he says this, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. And Paul wanted both Timothy and Titus to see the serious implications of sound speech and teaching. And how serious was it in the mind of Paul? Just listen to the end of verse 16. Persevere in these things. Okay, And these things are referring back to what he just said. Paying close attention to yourself and your teaching. And then he says this. For as you do, this will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Showing who you are by your discourse is very serious. And this also helps us put into perspective what is said in Titus 2.8 as we continue in the verse. Look at the middle of, flip back to Titus Two now, if you would, and look at the middle of verse 8, right after it says, sound in speech, it also says, which is beyond reproach. And this word is only used here in the New Testament, and the root idea is blameless, or something that cannot be condemned. And so when it comes to teaching doctrine, there are huge implications. And if we think about it, really, there's, there's nothing that could be more serious Just as Paul indicated to Timothy, souls hang in the balance. Pastors and elders must diligently labor to achieve, maintain, and model such a teaching ministry. Well, there's also something to be said here about everyday discourse or talking. And the issue here is not just limited to doctrine or theology, but also conversations 
of our day-to-day speech. And Paul likewise is urging uh, Titus to show who you are in your informal conversations with people. He wants Titus to also see that your informal conversations should be edifying, encouraging, and appropriate. And we see the overlap here with being a man of dignity. So how do you keep everyday conversations from really, we want them to be above reproach, right? How do you show who you are in your discourse when it comes to everyday speech? I'll tell you how. It means running from the conversations that involve gossip and malicious talk that tear others down when you're amongst friends. This is Ephesians 4.29 all the way. No corrupt, perverse speech is going to come out of your mouth. You're not going to allow your tongue to be the axe and to chop people down. You will run from those conversations. It means fleeing the temptation when you have the opportunity to talk about or to exalt self. To make yourself look better than others. Here's a little encouragement. Be a master of complimenting others. Be a testimony of also directing praise to the Lord for the work that he is doing in your life. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yes, 1 Corinthians 1, 31. And it means, as we alluded to earlier, that sexual or perverted joking that is crude or distasteful is not something that you're going to engage in or even listen to. And this is Ephesians 5, 3. That the, it, Paul uses a, a word there. He says that there's not to, not to be even a hint of it. There's also envious talk that promotes jealousy and strife. Well, we have one final point to consider that really reveals the reasons why young men specifically should desire to do this. Our passage, again, is providing three specific ways for you, young men, to be strong examples so that your testimony has the greatest impact in the church and to the watching world. And your example starts in point number one from verse six. It calls you to sober your thinking. Your example continues with point number two as you follow Titus's example and show who you are by your examples of good deeds, doctrine, dignity, and discourse. And now we need to understand why. Why do any of this? And we find our answer in verse 8. Look at the middle and the end of verse 8 and and read it with me. So that the opponent will be put to shame, have nothing bad to say about us. It's our third and final point. Shine in the presence of protesters. And oftentimes we come to a sermon and at the end of the message... And we're like, so what do I do with that now? How, how is this supposed to change me? What is this going to look like practically? And I'm grateful our text provides the answers for us. In the Greek, this phrase functions as a purpose statement. And it answers the questions why this is so important for Titus and other young men by starting with two simple words, so that... Or your translation might say, in order that two things will inevitably happen according to God's plan and and purpose. And such strong examples, according to Paul, will allow Titus and young men to shame God's opponents and to silence the slanderers. And this is A and B under our last point. Shaming God's opponents. You know what's interesting in the text is that the opponent here is in the singular and we, we really don't know what the reference that Paul is referring to. Early church father Chrysostom, he thought that it was Satan. He was the only guy who thought that, by the way, uh, at least that, that I found. And, and really, we, we, we rule that out because of the context because Satan would not be ashamed <laughs> of doing what he does. 
Other theologians claim it's referring to false teachers and deceivers mentioned in Titus 1.10, or that it could be a reference to the opponents within the Cretan church or even the non-Christians outside the church. And there's really no way for us to know. But because it's referring to a single opponent, it's been suggested that Paul was speaking to the collective entity. And one commentator shared, there exists such opponents in every generation and location, end quote. And this is probably why the Holy Spirit led Paul just to, to use that general term so that it covers the span of time. And regardless of the opponent, the point that remains is that Titus' example and younger men who follow it are to put the opponent to shame. And how do you do this? You do this by being sober in your thinking and being sensible in all things. You do it by showing people who you are. By your example of good deeds, your dignity, and how you talk. That's how you shame the opponent. And I cannot help but think of our Lord's words in Matthew 5.16 that you would let your light shine before men in such a way that they would glorify your Father in heaven. Such examples shine in the presence of protesters and not only put the opponent to shame, but letter B under point three shares that it silences the slanderers. Look at the end of verse 8. The opponent will be shamed, having nothing bad to say about us. And in the Greek, it's in the present tense, and it underscores that the opponent continually finds himself at a loss in trying to defame God's servant. And so Paul is emphasizing that believers should live lives of faith in such a way that no charges can justifiably be brought against their testimony. And this really, I think, is a good illustration of a courtroom setting. Picture a courtroom where the judge can find no basis for the association of the plaintiff or accusation of the, the plaintiff because the person being accused lives such a life of Christian integrity. That's a that's a good picture. You may have heard this question before, but it, it fits the context perfectly. If you were arrested and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? A strong question right there. Paul's point here for Titus and for young Christian men and really for the entire church is that there would be that there would be and there should be in your life Paul even uses the word us for the last word in our passage including himself and one commentator shared us may simply refer to Christians in general because people in the watching world often judge a local church or the Christian faith by what they know and they see Christians doing and unlike our five-year-old boy who we considered at the beginning of the sermon who attended his first football game with his father and who was confused by the example of the adults that he witnessed, may everyone in our church and may young men specifically in our church leave no doubt in the minds of the watching world about their commitment to Christ and their testimony in our church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pause right now just to still our hearts and even to meditate and to absorb really all that we've heard from your word And you have a heart and a, and a passion, a burning passion for your people. And you know the significance of the impact that young men in the church can have. In the history of how you've used young men to shape and direct the, the steps for the generation. And I, I pray that 
our testimony and the young men that are in this church would be the examples that you've called them to be. And yet, Father, we're reminded by your grace and in your goodness that we all fall short. There's no one that is executing this perfectly. Nobody would make that claim. And we're so thankful for the times that we do fall short that we can run to you forgiving arms and run to the, the, the grace of the gospel that allows us to be forgiven and to start afresh. And your desire is that we focus on each and every day. Each day has enough trouble of its own that you would guide us and help us as a church to be a testimony to the watching world. We thank you for this study and this series and what it's allowed us to see. We pray that you'll continue to allow us to see in greater depths and even the next time that we meet as we talk about the testimony that we can have in the workplace that you would bless us. Help us to honor you. Help us to be sensitive to your instruction. Help us to live out purity of doctrine that would translate into fruitfulness and to good deeds. We thank you for the good deeds that we see so many in our church performing, that they're honoring you and it flows out of a heart of worship, a heart of faithfulness, and yes, a heart of obedience as well. And we cherish their testimonies. We pray that you'll continue to strengthen us to follow the ultimate example of Christ and those who are following him as well. We commit the rest of this day to you. We pray that you'll bless equipping hour as we learn how to study the Bible, that you'll be with Jan as he teaches us and blesses us. We thank you and praise you for getting Julia back safely to us. We pray that you'll be with Gina as she maybe picks up a little bit more responsibility with Julia gone, that you'll bless her and continue to allow her good works to honor you. And Lord, we just are so thankful as a church family to have this time to come together. We want to sing this last song to you because you're worthy of it. And we do want to take up our cross daily. We want to die to self so that we can live for you. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.